Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Ryan Cruz from CultureCast Radio, and you're listening to the 4D Podcast Network. I'm your host, Michael Malone, and today I'm sharing my conversation with Dr. Tanisha King. Dr. King has a bachelor's degree in sociology, a master's degree in social work, and a PhD in education policy organization leadership. Her research is centered around black women, microaggressions, and the myth of the strong black woman in America. So naturally, we talked a lot about race relations in America, microaggressions, what they are, uh, how to fight them and how to be a better ally to the African-American community. When I listened back to this episode, there was a glaring theme, and that is acceptance. In the self-care world, acceptance is one of the key foundations to growth. You have to accept your flaws in order to work on them, right? That makes sense. But America has yet to accept that it has racial inequality. We hide behind laws and amendments that were written by our founding fathers that were all in hopes to keep the African-American community in its place in this country. We hold them up in defense of racial bias in these modern times to, to look more progressive than we really are. The truth is, the African-American community is and has been under attack for decades, held back even and subdued. But on a large scale, we refuse to even admit any of that. We skirt these hard conversations we so desperately need to have, and we, we lean heavily on the Obama presidency or popular athletes and celebrities as beacons of, of equality. The problem is, Those are extremely rare cases where someone from that community somehow rose above the odds that were set against them. It has no correlation to the average Joe getting pulled over and is in danger of getting shot over a speeding ticket or or killed for jogging in the wrong neighborhood or even worse, a child wearing a hooded sweatshirt after dark. These are the injustices that are stacked against the African-American community that we that we need to address, yet we refuse to. That leads us back to acceptance. America needs to own up to the fact that we do in fact have racial inequality, even in these modern and progressive times we're living in. And once we do that, then and only then we can work on what needs to be done and have actual growth, change, progress. You can't fix a problem if you don't admit to having it in the first place. It makes me think of a great quote I I heard a while back, which is a, Understanding is the first step to acceptance, and only with acceptance can there be recovery. That last part is so key. Only with acceptance can there be recovery. Now, maybe there's something in your life that you've been wanting to fix for a while. Maybe it's a habit that you're trying to break or just wanting to get better at doing something. Work on accepting the hard truth first. Force yourself into a hard conversation with yourself, (laughs) right? We talk about that all the time on here. It's you versus you. Stop avoiding these hard conversations because you're not ready to hear it or, or it might hurt too much. Listen, pain is growth. No pain, no gain, right? I mean, we grow from discomfort. And I think it's way past due for America to have a hard, painful, long talk about race and equality in this country. Because, well, Only with acceptance can there be recovery.
So there, I, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you today. And there are so many things I want to talk to you about. And I've been, I've been trying to like narrow down a way to start our conversation. And <laughs> I think, I, I think the best way is, is talking about privilege. It's something that I uh, am constantly correcting people on, you know, on my side, I, I I consider myself to be an ally. And so it's something that I'm constantly correcting people in my community and in, in my Facebook feed and Twitter feed and all that stuff, the people that are interacting um, uh, with me ab about the Black Lives Matter movement and everything else that's going on, this idea of white privilege. I feel like a lot of people think of it as uh, almost like a get out of jail free card or something. They're like, I don't have white privilege. I got a speeding ticket just the other day. And you're like, that's not what white privilege is. <laughs> do, do you want to help me ex explain this and, 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 and help these people understand what, what the broader idea of what that privilege means? Yes, that privilege, especially in today's world, right? And we say today's world, I say it loosely, right? Because these are not new things that we're facing, right? Like when we think about Rodney King, Jim Crow laws, all of these things that have existed well before the Black Lives Matter movement was birthed. It's unfortunate that we had to reinvent a movement to address the very things that we've been addressing for centuries. White privilege is in fact being able to not see those things and think it's the same. Believing that you getting a speeding ticket too or being stopped by the police is the same as racial profiling, the harassment of black and brown folks and the murder heinously of black and brown people regularly, right? White privilege is being able to walk the street without fear of um, death, to not worry about your children on a regular basis. I have three right? The work that I do is very much connected to what world I want them to exist when they're not in my home, right? My son is 11. I live in a predominantly white area. There is not a time where I'm not thinking, oh my God, he wants to walk to the gas station. There's a level of like anxiety, right? Like as a parent, regardless, there's levels of anxiety that you have. And we, right, overanalyze everything and have kind of some irrational fears, but these are like real fears. These are things that have happened that absolutely shouldn't happen. So white privilege is being able to wake up, not have those fears or worries, um, that things that don't impact you the same way that they do black and brown people. Um, when, we, when we shift into what white, what allyship looks like, right? People think that that means having like this basic understanding of not being racist, right? Being non-racist. If I'm not racist and I don't say racist things, then that means I'm an ally. It's much more active than that. And it requires sacrifice, right? Which is why you don't find a lot of folks actually being true allies because a Black Lives Matter sign outside of your house does not equate to allyship. Right. It's like, what are, you, what are you doing to teach others? What are you doing to improve not only your community, but the greater community uh, that your outreach that you do have on, you know, through your social media, through your actual life, through your, your office work, you know, um, it takes more than, than just, you know, putting up a, the black square one day on your Instagram feed <laughs> and being like, Hey, I'm an ally. Uh, it takes way more than that. And, and you touched on something so important, this idea of new racism, this isn't a new idea. This has been, it's just getting captured more. Now it's on your Facebook feed. That's the only difference. You know, there's dash cams now. There's people that are recording stuff on their phones and they're uploading it and they're sharing it. Now it's not new racism. It's just, it's getting shared now. It's more, uh, it's, it's just more accessible. Um, it's this, I, I fight that all the time, this idea of, of new racism. And you're like, no, no, this isn't, you know, because the fight back that you get a, a lot of times, especially in the last four years, is this idea of like, oh, you think Trump started all this? You think Trump? No, but he's allowed it and encouraged it and has brought a lot of it to our attention that we thought that we had had settled, uh, yeah. you know, um, well, I thought, you know, personally, I thought, and I, I know a lot of people feel this way. I thought we were much further along than this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, 
Donald Trump has sure shed a light on <laughs> where exactly we are. Uh, and Mike, you know America. what? That's a part of that's a part of privilege too, though, right? Like when we think about as black and brown people, we know that it hasn't went anywhere. We know that it still exists based on everyday lived experiences, and we don't need the news feed or the videos to know that it's happening. And the worst part about that is that when the news feeds and the the body cams are occurring, right? Like justice still isn't served. That is privilege. It's unbelievable. And the the argument that I uh, that I was getting into a lot with um, after the, joy, the George Floyd murder was this idea of if African Americans was just would just act right, if they would just comply with police, then there wouldn't be a problem. And I've personally been in the vehicle with my black friends and I've gotten pulled over and I've been driving the car and the, the police officer has gone to their window first and asked for their ID. I've mm-hmm. had firsthand experience with that. And so when you tell somebody who maybe doesn't have a diverse friend group or maybe doesn't you know, uh, have that kind of exposure, they can't believe it. It's so unbelievable to them that they're just like, they, it, it, I mean, and I mean unbelievable, like literally, <laughs> they refuse to believe it. <laughs> and you're like, no, this is happening. I've seen store clerks follow my friends around the store. Like it is real. And I think a lot of times we bleed into that idea of racism and and hatred and all this, this, this idea of this is, is, um, is, is when we think like, like you had touched on this idea of, well, I didn't say this, or I don't think this, therefore I'm not racist or I can't be racist. It's such a gray area. And you can, you can, again, like you can have African-American coworkers and friends and still do and say racist things and still have access to that privilege. Yes, yes, yes. All of that, right? Like (laughs) you need to be more than non-racist. You have to be anti-racist and anti-racist takes work and sacrifice that people aren't willing to put in the work to do. What I found in my work is that people are so concerned about their reputation and like getting defensive about being called out on things that they can't see the bigger picture. I'm like, dude, people are dying. Like this is bigger than you, right? Like there are injustices happening in the world where you're stuck in being offended that you were called out on something that you said. When we're trying to educate you on what would help you get further and why this is important. It's bigger than you, it's not about you, but it's about what you can do to minimize the hurt and things that are being caused. Because when we talk about things like microaggressions, right? So these subtle forms of racism, people think you're being too sensitive when you right, say that that's a microaggression. When in actuality, it starts with the way you think. And so prior to this work, I did cognitive behavioral therapy. So CBT very much talks about attitudes, feelings, behaviors. How you think about particular groups of people ends up leading to your attitudes about them and then how you treat them in in real life. And so when a police officer is approaching Black folk and they're choosing to go to that window instead of going to the actual driver window, it's because of their preconceived notion of this group of people before you got there. And now that's perpetuated by how I treat you in real life. Right. So it starts out with that thought process because we've been socialized so tough to think that way. And we're not willing to change it. I'm so glad you brought up microaggressions. That's something I wanted to talk to you about. And can you elaborate on that for people that don't aren't aware of what microaggressions are? Yeah. So the coin was um, the term was coined in like 72 by Chester Pierce. He was an African-American male um, psychiatrist, and he really used it at the time to describe co-workers uh, that he interacted with and some of the behaviors that they were alluding to. And at the time, he described it as like behavioral, uh, verbal and nonverbal slights, indignities and insults, offenses directed specifically towards black people in the space that he was working, working in. Um in recent times, D.W. Sue, he's um, a, a real renowned author who does microaggression work of Asian descent, who um, wrote the book Microaggressions in Everyday Life. And he's like since expanded that term from what Chester Pierce had it as. And he's made it really inclusive of all um, marginalized and oppressed groups. But it's really these subtle things that we do and say on a regular basis that are stereotypical um, in nature. So for instance, if you say to an international or Asian person, where are you from? and they say New York, but they lean in then and go, no, where are you really from, right? 
And embedded in that isn't really where you from. It's like you aren't American. You are a foreigner in your own country, right? And then you're perpetually asked these questions, which limits your sense of belonging in the space that you're in. Uh, I, I've gotten, you're so articulate, so much. You're not saying I'm articulate because I'm articulate. You're saying I'm articulate because I'm a black girl and you expect me to be what you believe to be as ghetto. My my buddy, uh, it, it was uh, it, it was so um, we used to, we used to hang out all the time, and we were both comics, and we would tour together all the time. And and uh, the thing that he used to get all the he's, he's a black man, and the thing he used to get all the time is, man, you sound so white. Yeah. Yep. Ugh, it's fucking disgusting. And 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 here's the thing: this this idea of this person being uh, racist. They're not meaning it to be racist. And that's where the microaggression comes in, right? It's like almost like these uh, these backhanded compliments would be <laughs> you know, almost a way to put it where this idea of like, oh, I'm not trying to be right. I was just trying to ask where you're from. Oh, I was just I just said you have nice hair. I just, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> you sound smart and this idea. But, you know, um, so and I, I don't think it boils down to necessarily. Uh, well, I can't say all the time. Obviously, there is hatred and racism. But I think I think there is a certain percentage of people that have a lack of diversity mm-hmm. where they just don't fucking know any better. Mm-hmm. And and this doesn't you know, these microaggressions don't just bleed over into the African-American community or the international community. It's bleeding into trans community and the, and the gay community and everything else. And so you know, this idea of somebody who is racist or homophobic or something, maybe they just don't know any trans people. Maybe they never grew up around anybody (laughs) from anywhere else and they just don't fucking know any better. And so this idea of of microaggressions, do you think it's always rooted in some kind of hatred or racism? Or do you think it's possible that people just are assholes? Yeah, (laughs) just lack of diversity. Just don't. I've never so, met a, a you know a guy from Beijing, and I <laughs> yeah. I want to ask all the questions. So it's a little bit of both, right? Some of it is just blatant ignorance, like I have no idea. And I talk about that in my work, like we're socialized a certain way. And Tanisha has grown up in a particular area. I am a black woman. I lived in poverty. I was in an educationally disadvantaged area, neighborhood, right? Crime, violence, these things. I got to see firsthand what disparities look like. Um, up close through lived experience. And then I went on to get an education and then couple that with professional and educational experiences, right? Now I get to marry how I lived um, and what that looked like with these theoretical and philosophical foundations and kind of meet in the middle to talk about them. But there are people, right? I'm in Southeast Ohio. There are not a lot of black folk, right? Uh, And so my lived experience and these other things have helped me form this opinion. But when you're not exposed to those things and don't have access to the dialogue and conversations, you're left to the ignorance of the media and the TV, which is why systemic and institutional racism um, is important to attack and, and, and remove is because that's where these people are getting their information from. And you think movies like BAPS and whatever other movies that's perpetuating Black women in certain light is what reality is. Now, it's 2021, Mike. I'm going to need people to do their work and like have some conversations on social media, right, to educate themselves to do better. Because at the end of the day, regardless of your intention and regardless of what you know, you're still responsible for your own behavior. Look, there's probably a lot of people out there listening right now. They're like, listen, I watch Tyler Perry movies. I get it. (laughs) Oh, Tyler, so many different, just such a dichotomy with with, with Mr. Perry now. I think you do a whole college course on just Tyler Perry and (laughs) the, the, uh, you know, hurting or helping Tyler, hurting or helping. Uh, what's you know what and so i've not i've not gone there with folks and the the tyler perry discussion what he is because right like some of it is based in truth and and some of it he's retelling what he's seen right but that's not unique to the black experience that's where the the key is right like there are these same shit that's happening with white folks too especially if you're white poor folk Right. And so when that narrative isn't shown, you're going to specifically say all black mamas be crackheads and and dating multiple men. And, you know, it, and it's just not a good look, sir. So I think it just needs to be right. some balance. Balance is key. Right. 
because the representation itself is important, but the story and the narratives that you're sharing with that representation is even more important. So I'm glad you brought that up because that I think that is one of the keys to getting better as a, as as community wise goes as as you know an all inclusive wise goes is normalizing these storylines right and we're seeing that more and more through Hollywood with TV shows and stuff we're seeing more and more black leads uh, black produced productions you know all of these different things like this is progress but it's nothing compared to what I see uh, you know I went overseas a. a a few years ago, I went to London and and uh, and a few other places in Europe, and on their billboards they have Muslim women and black men and and, and mm. Chinese children and all this stuff advertising, you know, toothpaste and cell phones and everything you see in America that have been whitewashed all these years. They are way ahead of us. Even in Canada, you'll see, you know. Indian people and, and, and black people on their billboards and advertisements and commercials for years. And we're just now catching up to that. And I think that has a lot to do with this, uh, with, with this conversation that we, this tabooness that's a, that's attached to yeah. Yeah. racial conversation. Um, because we we're just not used to seeing African-American faces and Indian faces and, and people of color on our toothpaste commercials, on our billboards, all that stuff. And not in a positive, right? And not in a positive light if it's not in a positive light. Yes, yes. And other times it's it's only symbolic and performative, right? Not actually to to do any work. And that is the good point in terms of like culturally where we are and like how far other cultures have like passed us by. And it's because we've not had a reckoning. We need a reckoning in America, like we need a societal reckoning and ownership up to the bullshit that is of that has led to where we are today. Like we need to own our shit and we are not willing to do that for the same reasons, right? Like don't want to be looked at in the bad light, want to keep saying we're the best place to be. We are not the best place to be. We have never, ever, ever been the best place to be. And we will not be the best place to be until there is a reckoning on up to the bullshit. Brian Stevenson, um, an author and, and speaker, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a he's an attorney who um, talks about his experience working with black male, males in the uh, legal justice system. And he talks about the same thing of like there's no reckoning and people want to talk about unity. You ain't getting no damn unity until you get a reckoning. We want to be unified too. We've been unified. We've been sweeping these things under the rug, walking on eggshells, trying to do what we could as black and brown folk. And now we over it, right? So the reckoning has to happen. We have to own up to it. We have to keep taking those statues down without people having to do it on their own. We have to say and 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 mirror this history that is real and tell people when they get here, look, we enslaved some people. These are still the effects today of this slavery. This is what, what the prison justice system is looking like and how that directly relates to, to slavery and what's happening. This is pipeline to prison and our K through 12 systems. And this is what we did. And this is what we're working on to fix it. And until that happens, we're just going to keep living in this illusion. It's an illusion and a facade that they want marginalized and oppressed groups to continue to walk the same way as if nothing is happening. We're yeah, living you, a lie. You can't have growth without accountability. And America refuses to have any kind of accountability. We, again, we refuse to even come to the table to have a conversation. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, the contrast was, uh, the contrast between the peaceful Black Lives Matter movement we saw over the summer versus the Trump loyalist uh, storming the Capitol steps on January 6th is night and fucking day. Mm -hmm. And people would like to compare those things, but you can't. Those two, two, two things are not comparable. Uh, it's apples and oranges. You know, you have one group that's fighting for injustice and, and equality and, and, and the idea of, hey, man, just stop shooting us. <laughs> like literally stop killing us. And the other stormed the, the Capitol steps because they were encouraged to do that. They think of fraud and all this other stuff. Like these are two separate ideas and two separate things. Um, but people keep trying to compare them. How did that, how did, how did you feel 
when you when you saw that on January 6th, when you saw uh, this Trump loyalist group get away with it initially, like yeah. the police allowing them in and stuff after the summer we just had marching in the streets for George Floyd and coming together. And I mean, all over the world, they were marching. Do, do yeah. you remember those feelings that you had when you did? You, did you watch it live or anything or? Yeah. So pissed off. <laughs> yeah i was Same. pissed i was like look I, these were my words look at this bullshit no they're not letting them in there no they're not opening a door for them no they're not just standing there watching them right no they're not taking pictures with the officers no the hell they not but here they were yes they were yes they were yes they did Right. And then you're going to try to act like this exact same thing would have happened if it was Black Lives Matter or, or any other group. Right. That had a diff- that that had black or brown skin. We already know what that looks like from the civil rights movement. Right. Like we know what it looked like then with hoses being turned on, dogs being got getting beat. Right. Like it would not have looked the same. Oh, we don't even have to go back that far. We saw Trump's people uh, tear gas folks and move them out of the way so he could take a picture with an upside down Bible <laughs> in front of a D.C. church. Like you don't have to go back to the 60s and 70s to, to find that, uh, that, uh, that 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 contrast. It's it's fucking here. So so moving forward, how do we how do we begin to repair this? Because uh, it does it has felt like I, I don't I mean, it, if, it feels like there's a lot of relief now that now that he's gone. Um, but it has felt for the, you know, the course of this pandemic that there has been this idea of like a, a civil war building amongst us. Mm-hmm. How do we deescalate that? How do we move forward and how do we heal uh, now that? the wicked witch is dead (laughs) yeah so first we have to acknowledge some part of what you said earlier in terms of the wicked witch is dead but black lives matter started when we had a black man in office right yes people have to pause and let that sit in the necessity of that movement people were being killed before right before trump even came along and now that you don't have a symbol of the incitement that mean that was already in them people right like i think it's so much easier for us to have the person as a symbol and, and pinpoint and absolutely what you said earlier, exacerbated, right? Enhanced it, incited. That's just the, that was the ramification of that. But those feelings, thoughts, and behaviors of these people were happening before, right? That that man got in office. So what we need is the reckoning, the acknowledgement, and then the accountability that goes along with it. We need actual legislation and policy specific to the killing of black and brown folk. In addition to persecuting people that do it, we need to set the precedent and the tone that that is unacceptable and not okay to rehumanize black people so that it's no longer an issue. How do you feel, staying on the politics narrative, how do you how do you feel about this idea of, uh, I mean, obviously it's, it's great to celebrate black women and all the things that they've done. They've saved us so many times in this country, but I want to talk about more about relying on them or leaning on them or uh, assuming that they will come save the day. Um, As a, how it's just, it's it's such a messy subject to think like to unpack. I mean, I don't even know where to begin this idea of relying on, on the black community to, to come save us once, once again, And, and talking about moving forward and all this stuff, how can we, how can we do better on <laughs> as allies mm-hmm. uh, outside the black community? How can we take some of that stress and pressure and relief off of the black community to, again, be this superhero that comes and swoops in our democracy once yeah. again? Well, and that's the thing, listen and believe, right? Like listen and believe the reality of what's happening. Um, and then, and talk to talk to us about what you actually can do, right? Like go into the work. This is why it's important in terms of legislative re- representation with, um, with Kamala and, uh, and Biden that's in there now getting folks that look like us so that we can write the policies and help. But that leaning on black women is a, is a thing internally and externally that hasn't went away because we are the ones that step up because we're action oriented and we're not sweeping stuff under the rug because at this point the rug is too high uh, and we're trying to fix and resolve, but it's not our job. Dismantling racism and white supremacy is on white people. And if you can't um, step in and do that, we're gonna keep seeing the same problems. When I think about allyship, I think about the uh, woman that, that, that climbed up the statue. I forget her name at the moment, 
right? And they called, gave her a call, said, come, come and take it down. We're ready. And she climbed up there. The police came. They were going to tase the actual statue. And then obviously that would have harmed her. She would have failed it, right? Like that, it, it would have been catastrophic. Her yeah. white male ally friend was there. He did not just stand in front of the police. He went and put his hand on the statue because he knew in that moment the power as a white male in that space that they would not taste that statue because his hand was on it. That is the sacrifice that it's going to take from allies to actually make a difference and to alleviate some of the pressure and stress that we got, like pr help protect us and then do the work so that we can move forward. I, speaking of doing the work, you know, I, I, I feel this way in, in my community is, you know, I hear this, this conversation of like, well, I want to march, but I also, I, you know, I, I want to let other people be heard. I've been told to be, you know, I've been told to listen right now. That's my job is to listen, but I also want to be vocal. I want to post about this. I want to share this. How can we how can we listen and be active at the same time? Are there things that we could be doing to help the movement, help the awareness, help appropriate the, the culture movement that's happening right now without overstepping our bounds and look like we are uh, Some virtue signaling and yeah. And like trying to like step up and be like, we'll handle it. Don't worry. Black people need to be taken. You know, it's like, no, 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 <laughs> it's, it's not your turn yet. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it starts in the workplace. I think it, it feels so big, right? Like, and that's where people right. come in like, well, what can I do as an individual? It starts in the space that you're in. Like you are not going to dismantle the systems and institutional racism on your own where you are. So it starts in the organizations you're committed to, right? Like as a podcast host, interviewing folks that specifically talk about these issues in your workplace, not doing microaggressive shit, right? If you're on, if you're in the C-suite, making sure your leadership is representative of diverse folks and that you're creating an inclusive environment, right? Like having leaders that are representing black and brown folk, but allowing them to have a team to support them so that it doesn't fall on them. And that's what it takes in every area and every segment of our society is like changing it bit by bit in the workplaces and in different cultures and spaces that we're in, right? And then holistically, that'll end up turning into something bigger and better. And if you're in legislation and politics, talk about it all the time. Don't give up talking to it. If when I'm at work and I'm, if you've read and seen, Tanisha is going to say what she <laughs> feels about some things. People are like, you have a way of just telling it like it is. I don't know what, who else to be. It's, it's what it is. We, we need to speak it. Speak it as much as we speak it. Get as outraged as we're getting. Be as angry, right? And demonstrate commitment and devotion by sacrificing. I'm at the table. I choose to interrupt and put my little church finger up like, um, no, like that's not the same, right? I want you as white allies to do it. Don't come to me later and thank me like, I'm so glad you said something. Girl, that's not helpful, right? Like I need right. to not be the only one saying something. I need you to also choose in that moment, move your uncomfortability because I'm uncomfortable when I do it too. And I still shouldn't have to be the only one doing it. Yeah. And so yeah, to be on the front lines. Yes. Put your hand on that on that pole and be willing to to be tech, right? Like do what you need to do what you need to do because we don't have a choice but to do it because it our survival literally depends on it. And I think I think a, a, another thing we could be doing is is sharing more stories and celebrating more people before they get to a a, a level of of, of celebration, right? And we, we talked a little bit about this idea of, of uh, the, the black narrative coming to the bigger screen now and more producers, this and that. But before that, all, you know, only time you would see people of color on billboards and cereal boxes and all that is if you achieved a certain level of status, right? If you are the best. Athletes. Yeah, exactly. If you were the best basketball player in the world or shot putter or rapper or whatever, like you have to achieve a certain amount of greatness before people, uh, would share your story. I think the thing that would go a long way is sharing stories of people in their communities that are happening and sharing stories mm -hmm. of the people that haven't had that level of like, you know, again, uh, fastest guy in the world. <laughs> like, that's great. Uh, can we get him when he's in high school, maybe, and talking about right. him breaking records then and sharing their stories then, or even getting stepping away from that um, that narrative of athletics and entertainment? Because I mm -hmm. feel like that pushes um, the, the the wrong narrative. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think obviously storytelling has always been a powerful, impactful thing. And it's why you already heard me say, right? Black girl, Southside Chicago Park. I, I use who I am in my work and it's intentional because it, it reframes and reshapes what you think about those other girls that are still there now, right? So it, it reframes it. And what you're talking about is humanizing black folk, like making us human. Like, and if you're telling the story at the young ages and as you progress, it, it shows you in a different light versus the stereotypical notion that you've been spoon fed this entire time. Um, and then when things happen <laughs> with us, that's your justification for that's who they are. Right. It's, it's so demeaning and it's, uh, yeah, I want to talk about that more. And I want to talk about your story too. There's growing up on the South side of Chicago, um, it was, did you have, uh, it was a single mother because I know you have brothers and sisters, right? Yeah. So I have two younger brothers, even though they look older, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we grew up with their dad. So I have a different dad whom I've never met. And, uh, I was raised somewhat by my stepdad and my mom, um, until my undergrad time at, at Illinois. Um, and then he, he passed away six or seven years ago. Uh, but before then, it was both of them. So not single parent, but he wasn't really helpful. So <laughs> might as well have been, might as well have been single parent. Yeah, my uh, my real dad. I joke around that he was on everything but the right path. You know, yep. <laughs> sounds sounds about right. That was my my stepdad. Yeah, my mother was uh, pretty much single mom. Same same kind of story. He he actually he passed when I was really young, and then I, I had a, a stepfather come uh, step in when I was around fifteen. Who like he he really stepped up and and treated me in his own, and, and kind of like did the whole you know did the whole dad thing, and was really there for me as a father figure, and showed me what love in a relationship should be. You know, I had such a a, a a contrast of this idea of like, you know, barely seeing, barely having a father figure and then going into a, a guy who was always in my fucking business, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't do the, you didn't do the curse out and stuff out. You're not my dad. <laughs> no, we actually, you know, he came around in a time where I was all, you know, I was 15, 16. So I was already, you know, you, you feel already grown then. And uh, I was like, what's this guy going to tell me? <laughs> well, you know, and, and hopefully some of them uh, tell when you were talking about earlier, like, what do we what do we do? Those those figures are important in your life, even when it comes when it comes to racism. Right. And like teaching folks the right thing. Um, and so I think about white parents to their children being able to inform them of the history and teaching them to do better and be different as we as we go. And so you uh, I. I view your mother kind of like my mother, my, my mother worked two jobs growing up, you know, um, again, like she was married, but kind of living that single mother lifestyle and, you know, uh, doing whatever she could to put food on the table and make sure that I had everything I needed and stuff like that. Do you pull a lot of strength and, and motivation from your mother and her story? Or was there somebody in the community that you saw that, that was more of an inspiration or, Y'all know my mom is a badass. So <laughs> she <laughs> she always did what she needed to do, right? Like I always saw that strength from her and perseverance and, and pushing through and doing what she needed to do to make sure her family survived. And I absolutely pull all of that from her and use it um, in my daily life. She had two and three jobs, right? Um, went without eating from time to time because we didn't have food, right? She was going to make sure we were good. So she has been my number one, her and my grandma. So I talk about leaving a legacy in some of my keynotes and that legacy building starts with what I learned from them. No, they are not college educated people, but they are the smartest women I've ever met on the history of this planet, right? And I wouldn't be who I am today without either of them. Um, so my grandma taught me how to do uh, homemaker stuff uh, and then taught me about, right, some other things. And so between the both of them, I wouldn't be who I am. And then they believed in me, right? Encouraged, motivated, despite what was going on around. Um, this confidence that I tend to elude. <laughs> Sometimes people call it bad as uh, fearless <laughs> is what some of my employees call me the fearless leader. I'm like, okay, I'll take it. Right. But I get that. I get that from my mom and grandma. Yeah. Same. It was my, my mother and my grandmother raising me two strong, beautiful, independent women. Uh, my grandma's still, I mean, she's 95 this year and she's, 
uh, one of the most stubborn women I've ever met. <laughs> uh, but, you know, so funny. And, and so she's endured so much in her lifetime. And, uh, you, you know, you, you're talking about these ideas that we we kind of soak up like a sponge when we're young, right? The all, everything that we, that kind of shapes us uh, growing up is things that we see in our community, see in our, our parents, see at our home and these traits that we, we soak up. We, sometimes we don't even know it. We just do it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about the school system, you know, when you're young, you know, this conversation that we've started to have as a nation now is, is being more honest with America's uh, history and ditching this idea of this traditional idea of, 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 like you said earlier, this idea of like America first, America's the best, you know, we we're the greatest country ever. And it's like anybody who's ever read a fucking history book knows that's not true. <laughs> and so now you have this conversation going on. That's, that's a lot of people are fighting for more honest uh, uh, American studies. Um, do you support that? Or have you, are, are you involved in, in kind of that narrative or? Hell yeah. yeah. So <laughs> stop erasing our history. Tell people what you actually did, right? Was it Texas that was like taking stuff out the books? It's like, sir, you can't just make stuff up and we're not going to forget because you was like, we ain't put it in the school system. No. no, it happened and it's still happening. And we need to know where it stemmed from. Like that that's what it is, the history. So I'm very much for, right? Yeah, I feel like they're changing the wrong things. Like they're like, well, we took the N-word out of a Tom Sawyer. So racism's over, right? <laughs> and you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> That's not what we wanted you to change. We wanted you to fix all this other shit. We wanted you to talk more about That's black leadership and black inventors and philosophers and like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we fixed Tom Sawyer. <laughs> damn show not enough right that that talks about performative when I do consultancy on the side I'm leading people from performative to transformative practices so I can call them out on bullshit like that like that is not enough you know it's not enough this is what it's going to take to get it to be enough so even in my full-time work we're working on decolonizing the curriculum like making sure that the medical education that our students are getting right mirrors the contributions of African-American people and people of the of Native American descent and other BIPOC, right? Like we have to do that work. It's important, decolonize it, add the, the right authors, take away some of these practices that are harmful to the disparities in the health system, right? People are literally dying in clinics and hospitals as a result of bias, but pe- yeah. other people just don't see it. Like they see it as like this just discon- disconnected, disjointed thing, but it's like microaggressions, people become doctors, hold these beliefs, don't listen to black women, and then they're dying and have the highest black maternal mortality rate, right? And so as we're training medical students, we have to share with them those very things and minimize that implicit bias as much as we can so that people can live. It's literally a matter of life and death everywhere you go as a related racism. And until we address it as such, we're going to keep having these conversations and dialogues. There's a time for dialogue and it's a time for action. So we have talked to her blue in the face, right, about racism, about the things that are being perpetuated, about stereotypes. Now it's time to kind of put our words to action and like actually fix some shit that's not just performative, that's going to be impacting and long lasting. And yeah, that's one of the things that I talk about on here a lot is uh, I, I praise the generation coming up behind me. This, you know, like you and I had joked off air about about this TikTok generation coming <laughs> up. These these uh, these young these young people, they they feel like a a, a a breath of fresh air. They feel like actual change is coming, and it's the first time I've felt like that in a long time, in, in my lifetime at least. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of times we 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 have these ideas of change, and we are met with uh, with these blockades, these gatekeepers, um, and these gatekeepers are so loyal to these traditional ideas. Um, and I think the real change is going to happen when you have the generation coming up behind us who has the same kind of issues we have, the same questions we have and, and a lot more and they're, and they're willing to fight for it. And in the future, 
our generation is going to be the gatekeepers and we're going to allow a lot of that change. And that keeps me hopeful. It's this idea of, you know, everybody under the age of, of 25 lives in a van. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> they're, they're like, I, I don't know why I'm going to church. I don't have to get married. I'm not going to buy a house. You know, <laughs> like I'm marching for Black Lives Matter. I'm doing all this, like defund the police. You know, all of these things that, that our generation, I feel like, questioned. You know, we were like, well, why do I have to get married? Well, your brother's married, so you're going to do, you know, like, right. well, why do I have to have a kid? Well, you know, this or that, you know, and we're fighting against these gatekeepers. So I have a lot of hope for this generation be behind us. Um, mm -hmm. Do you share that same hope or, or do you have a different idea of, of what's what the future looks like? Yeah, I, I think at this point, <laughs> you, you have to have hope. Otherwise, you're fighting for nothing. Right. There, There's otherwise I'm just fighting to be fighting. Um, so so hoping for change, absolutely. And I think the generation there, but then again, it's all about the legislation because it's not just about people having the passion and commitment to keep marching because marching has been happening for a long time. We consistently see progress, but we still need to have hope that it's actually gonna be some laws to back it up. So even when they talk about the body cameras, Tanisha's like, body camera or somebody with a phone, y'all still ain't persecuting nobody. So when people clapping their hands for, for, for Mike De DeWine and other folks in Ohio and elsewhere, it's like, that's still performative because guess what? Y'all have had body cameras for other people and you're still not persecuting them. So I have hope because they will keep going what we started, right? Like it's about consistently and that accountability that you talked about because people will not change unless you force them to. Just think about like when you talk about traditional things, people are kind of set in their ways, right? And when you're benefiting from it, okay? When you're yeah. benefiting yeah. socially, economically from the oppression and marginalization of these groups of people, why would you want someone to interrupt that? So we absolutely have to keep fighting it. The prison system is a prime example of that, the privatized prison, right? So that's why I'm glad to see, I believe it's on Biden's agenda, right? To adjust, uh, address private prisons and all of that stuff. But these are the major initiatives that happen, ha have to happen even before the generation behind us comes and oversees it and carries it out, right? Like it, the work has to be before they even get there. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, and the thing that I'm, I'm hearing in our conversation is something that I've heard uh, a few years ago and that I, I love and I, I try to talk about as, as much as I can, which is this idea of be the change that you want to see. Um, it was something that I had heard, uh, not for the first time, but I heard it in a poetic way uh, when there was that Dallas shooting a few years ago. And the sheriff came on the news and he was talking about, if you want to see change in your community, be the change in your community, sign up for the police force, run for mayor, do these things, like be the change that you want to see in the world. And Hillary Clinton echoed it when she ran for president and she had talked about the sheriff talking about this. And when, she, when they, when they, when she was talking about the shootings in Dallas and, and, uh, and it's something I've carried with me and I, I try to talk about it is a lot. And it's something I'm getting from this conversation a lot is be the change. Absolutely. It's be one of active. my favorite quotes. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes. And I think the originator was Gandhi and Obama also mentioned it in one of his speeches before. Right. And then Obama yes, also yes. said something, you know, something else in that was that we keep looking for the next leader. We keep looking for the next symbol that is going to like free us. You can be that simple together. It's about a unifying of that. We are not going to have another Malcolm X or Martin Luther King. Would be great if we do, right? So that they can lead the charge and be progress. But it takes more than just one person. Like, don't act as though you don't have any power or control uh, over circumstances. That's why I say start with what you have with where you are. And that's why mentorship in communities are excellent, right? And necessary because you have to see people that look like you doing these things, right? We don't have a lot of legacies of uh, people in certain communities that are showing you something different. So you need other people outside of that community to show you that it can look and be different, right? In addition to teaching you how to fight the system hell, because you're still going to get marginalized and oppressed despite that, right? Uh, when I talked about the bias in the healthcare system, if you've heard Serena Williams' story, right, and her near-death experience at the hospital as a Black woman, because she wasn't listened to, and it's fucking Serena Williams. Like, it's Serena Williams. And Serena Williams right. is having the same, like, I'm even going to say her accolades or that she's rich, famous, right? Like, it's Serena freaking Williams. And y'all still didn't listen to her, right? 
And so even if I achieve these accolades, this bias is still going to follow me. So it's about having the mentorship, having things in place and like being the change you want to see. But then that that takes everybody being the change they want to see, because the marginalized and oppressed groups can be and do that and still end up dead. Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. And that, that goes along with the, the social conditioning that we were talking about earlier and, and the narrative that we've been, uh, you know, told throughout the media and TVs and like, yeah, I mean, it, it all comes comes down to that that idea of social conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, I've absolutely loved our conversation. <laughs> Again, you are somebody that I could talk to for hours. <laughs> uh, please tell everybody where they can find you and learn more about uh, what you're doing and, and everything that you're involved with. Yeah, Mike, it's been a pleasure. I've not dropped so many F-bombs in a long time. So great. <laughs> oh, good. Appreciate good. the opportunity uh, to do that. So you can find me on all social media platforms uh, at Dr. King Speaks. You can also browse the website, drkingspeaks.com. Um, I help organizations move from performative to transformative diversity, equity, and inclusion practices. And I empower Black women and girls to defy odds and overcome obstacles. It was an absolute pleasure having you today. Thank you so much. You too. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. And I also want to thank my guest today, Dr. Tanisha King. I had such a wonderful time and I've learned so much. Hopefully you've learned so much. And if you're interested in reaching out to her, you can check her out on her website, drkingspeaks.com. That's drkingspeaks.com. Or you can follow along with her on Twitter and uh, she's at Dr. King Speaks. And if you want to follow along with me or reach out to me, everything is at Malone Comedy. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever you have, everything is at Malone comedy thanks again for listening don't forget to subscribe too sick of hearing my voice you can check out another podcast that i'm on called speakerphone i do it with my friend and singer songwriter ryan m brewer it's a good time uh you know pretty much the premise is him and i were having these great conversations over the years they were thought-provoking they were funny they were interesting and nobody got to hear them and so now <laughs> we started to record our phone conversations and share them with the world it's called speakerphone and you can listen to it on itunes spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast podcast app. Don't forget to subscribe.